Hello and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. This is Shyam Khanna, and today we are hosting Anushka Vaswani, a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. She specializes in growth stage companies within the enterprise software and infrastructure ecosystems. FinTech companies she covers now, or has covered in the past, include Earnin, Open Listings, A-Range, and Tide. Anushka has lived in the UAE, Turkey, Brussels, and finally the U.S., where she studied at Columbia University. After school, she worked at Goldman, McKinsey, and Matrix Partners, largely focusing on the tech sector. Anushka got her MBA at Harvard Business School and then started working for Lightspeed Venture Partners. Well, despite going to HBS, uh, we're very excited to have her on the podcast and share her experience with all of our listeners. So I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but how did you get the opportunity to live in so many countries? Yeah, that was mostly driven by my family. So, you know, by way of background, I was born in Dubai. And then my dad was working for a firm where the deal was we would move every four to six years. And in exchange, they would pay for housing and schooling. And so moved from Dubai to Istanbul, uh, then to New York. Uh, my family was relocated to Singapore for a brief period of time, and now they're fully settled in London. But it was definitely an amazing learning experience and definitely shaped the way I think about things today. Sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. And I know even industry-wise, I know you've actually gone across finance, consulting, now investing. What led you to go from these fields to the other? Yeah, so I started my career at Goldman. And to be honest, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. And I knew it would be a tremendous learning experience. And I had two big realizations on my first job. I think the first was that I could see that technology was changing the world, and I very much wanted a career that touched it. And then the second thing I realized is that what got me very, very excited about different businesses were factors above the EBITDA line. How do you think about this company's growth story? How is it playing in its market? How do we think about moats? And so from there, I actually joined McKinsey's West Coast office, where I got to work with a number of companies across the tech sector, and then worked with a small group of partners to start a new initiative at the firm to serve kind of these pre-IPO, hyper-growth clients. And in that, worked on McKinsey's first study with Facebook on the launch of internet.org. And then after I'd spent some time at McKinsey, the Matrix team actually reached out to me about joining as a member of their a fourth member of their early stage team on the West Coast. And what ultimately sold me on the role at Matrix and still very much rings true for me today in my day-to-day is that I get to learn about a new company, business model, and industry every day. And then more important, you're kind of working with individuals and founders that are going to shape the next what the next 10, 20, 30 years of our lives look like. And it is really kind of these two factors that make me feel very privileged to be able to do my job every day. Got it. So a lot of the listenership are actually students, and a lot of them really want to get into VC and figure out a way to break in. So uh, do you have any insights around, you know, your unique from, you know, from finance to uh, consulting, but consulting for a big tech firm? What are your learnings and what's your advice for your students? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, as you grow in the industry, the question you need to constantly ask yourself is, how do you win? And so you need to partner with these incredibly talented teams, and the best entrepreneurs are going to have anywhere from 15 to 50 firms vying to give them capital. And so the one question that 
everyone, I think, in the industry really asks themselves is why would an entrepreneur want to work with me versus the 50 other options that he or she has? And so maybe it's based on past experience building and scaling companies. Maybe it's deep domain expertise in a certain area. Maybe it's kind of a massive Rolodex that'll help an entrepreneur scale. But I think the more you can answer that question before even getting into the industry about why an entrepreneur would want to work with you versus, you know, everyone else, you know, the easier and more natural it will be to break into venture. Right. I think it's it's a very fundamental question that maybe people don't think about that much around just that human relationship. Yep. And I think it's one thing to, after you kind of get into the industry, you know, ultimately how you do well in the industry is answering that question, which is maybe something you might not appreciate before getting in. And it's certainly something I didn't appreciate in terms of how competitive, you know, it is to kind of get in front of these incredible founders. Got it. So specific to FinTech, what piqued your interest in this space? Yeah, so I'd spent a lot of time actually working with large financial services firms before I started in venture. And so I had a good understanding of the space as well as a good set of contracts in the industry. So when I you know, first started in venture, it made logical sense for me to spend time with fintech entrepreneurs, which I've kind of continued to do so through my career. And then it's also been an amazing time to be part of fintech because the last 10 years have been this era of enormous innovation in the industry where technologies like the mobile phone, social media, the cloud that have really rocked a number of industries really changed the face of financial services uh, and have started, you know, have been creating these demands for new solutions across everything from like payment to lending to debt collection. And so we've seen the rise of just a number of incredible companies in the sector. The question that we get asked very often from students is, how can I learn more about FinTech? It's such a nascent field. So do you have any recommendations for any kind of quirky podcasts or books or blogs? that students can learn more about this space? Yeah, I really I really like the site payments.com without the A, which really has broad coverage of a lot of things in financial services. American Banker is great. A good friend of mine named Rishi Taparia, who previously led business operations at a company called Point and is now starting his own company, also runs a weekly newsletter specifically focused on fintech that I really like. And then naturally, this podcast, I think, is a phenomenal resource. There you go. Shout out to Wharton Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to Lightspeed, what do you guys look at when you're deciding on an investment? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's really interesting. The team talks a lot about outlier businesses. And so when you do bring a company to committee, the question you need to answer kind of to the full partnership is, is this going to become the next kind of category-defining public company, which is an incredibly high bar. And I think because the team has that kind of bar around the companies we do, uh, we've been really lucky to invest in companies like Snapchat, Nest, Garden Health, MuleSoft, AppDynamics, Zscaler, Nutanix. And so that's kind of the lens by which we look at every new company uh, we decide to partner with. Got it. Now, FinTech itself is such a broad field. And I know it's rapidly evolving in the U.S., some verticals more than others. But just from your opinion, you know, which verticals, say like lending or wealth management or blockchain, uh, which one do you think has the greatest opportunity at this moment? 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, each of those verticals you named is massive. And we've seen, you know, a lot of companies gain scale, whether it's kind of lending businesses go public or now kind of very large scale robo advisors in the industry. But I think by no means is innovation in those sectors over. And so I think those are all very kind of, um, I think all those sectors are interesting opportunities to start large companies. One area that I'm spending a lot of time in is around the B2B fintech space. And so I think there are two interesting trends happening here. The first is that, you know, there have been a number of either new companies enter financial services, whether it's like Uber, Walmart, Amazon, who are starting to offer financial services products, or a number of like consumer fintech companies and startups gain scale. And so one thing that I think is very interesting is we're starting to see the rise now of companies that power some of these startups and financial services products with kind of B2B offerings, whether it's account openings, whether it's KYC AML, whether it's doing kind of payments for your product or card issuance. And so that's one space I'm kind of spending a lot of time in. And then the second space, which is, you know, in a similar vein, is around kind of B2B services for banks. And so a lot of banks right now don't have massive dev teams or maybe aren't able to attract the same level of talent that, you know, certain startups in the Valley can can attract on the IT side. And then there's this huge push to like upgrade your solution, whether it's developing kind of cloud native banking products and a cloud native core, whether it's, you know, figuring out how to do authentication and fraud and, you know, change your incumbent infrastructure systems to do that. And so I think one thing that we're seeing in that area is the rise of interesting companies that are being created to offer these products to banks and financial services firms as well. That makes a lot of sense. In fact, funnily enough, I'll be joining a digital partnerships team uh, at BNY Mellon, uh, where we partner with a lot of these fintechs and sometimes we even make uh, strategic principal investments. So I'd be curious to know from the other side of the table, what are some of the challenges that you've seen with regards to smaller fintechs partnering with these massive financial institutions? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, on the one hand, getting an, experience, an American Express, a BNY, a Chase involved in your company can really be a game changer for you. But this was a question a lot of companies I've worked with have dealt with. Uh, and so I actually wrote a short blog post on this topic. But on the one hand, you know, they can be amazing marquee clients for you. On the other hand, oftentimes with a lot of these large financial services institutions, it's an incredibly long sales process, anywhere from like one to two years. You know, you need a really powerful champion internally. Some companies can get lost in the POC process because a lot of these institutions are really risk averse. And so you can get stuck in this land of perpetually doing POCs Sometimes a lot of banks will demand uh, certain levels of customization. And for a small early stage team, it can sometimes be you don't want to get into a trap where you maybe you heavily focus your entire team around building for one bank and then aren't kind of a widespread product company. And so I think the thing here is to be very, very careful of like product roadmap and scope creep. The second is working with a couple of institutions to develop case studies that you can leverage with other institutions can be really powerful. And then I think you need to be really thoughtful about how you're going about the sales process. 
and how you're approaching these institutions so that you're able to kind of land a couple of deals without it taking inordinate amounts of time. Certainly. I, I've definitely seen that within the sector as well. I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of scope to uh, just make your bank maybe more friendly to fintechs and, you know, not just from a acquisition standpoint, but also from a partnership standpoint. Uh, and I know you actually have a monthly newsletter, correct? Yeah, it's called the Monthly Mail. Got it. And how do we get onto it? It should be. There's a link in my Twitter handle, uh, and then I'm happy to share share the link with you uh, later after this podcast if you're interested in signing up. Got it. We can actually put it in the notes as well, both your Twitter and the link. But that's, oh, that's something that should be interesting as well. And so, you know, looking at your career so far, what's the one achievement or investment that you're most proud of? Yeah, so I think a lot of times if a company is doing well, it's kind of ironic, but um, it doesn't need that much help from its investors. And I think what ends up taking up most of your time is sometimes when companies aren't doing as well or are facing kind of more challenged situations. And so there was a lot of, there was one particular company I spent a significant amount of time with while I was at Matrix that was undergoing a pretty difficult period where they were, they built a very interesting tech product and were really struggling in terms of one, selling it, and then two, getting people to deploy it. And so that was a really interesting moment where I felt like the board and the management team really came together to change the trajectory of the business. And so as a team, we did everything from like recruiting and convincing a key exec to join as the president of that company who helped to restructure the company's sales process, making a couple of key customer intros, and then joining the team on these initial meetings so that the company could develop a set of case studies it could take to other clients. One big one was getting the company refinanced so that it had capital on its balance sheet to go through this period of change, and then really working with the team around kind of the right analytics and KPIs the org should be tracking so that when a bottleneck arose, people were able to identify it early. And so that was definitely a tremendous learning experience for me career-wise. That's great to hear as well. So I know you've spent a lot of time consulting and tech and finance, which are generally speaking male-dominated. What advice would you have for other women, but also for other men who are really trying to figure out how best to foster an inclusive work environment? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's interesting because right now it's a great time, I feel, to be a female in technology and venture because there really has been so much kind of positive change and momentum around this issue. And so one thing that I think has been very positive that has opened, that has changed is that it's a topic that has become more frequently discussed and is now you know, being tracked by some organizations as a KPI. One example, actually, to highlight is one of my partners at Lightspeed, Jana, who's a member of this group of women called Hashtag Angels, actually launched an effort with one of our portfolio companies, Carta, called the Gap Table where they looked at the percentage of equity owned by women and underrepresented groups in Silicon Valley and various kind of Silicon Valley companies. And so ultimately, what really drives wealth creation in the Valley isn't salaries, it's kind of often equity. And that analysis, I think, actually uh, catalyzed a lot of great conversation and has been the starting point for some interesting action around you know, how do we change the status quo? How do we think about it? How do we 
maybe create kind of more equitable environments, whether it's in startups and companies or within venture capital firms. And then, you know, I think one, when you're building teams and thinking about it, this is something to think through. Like, are you building a diverse team? Are you creating an inclusive culture? One simple rule I actually really like is the Rooney rule, which was adopted in the NFL in, in, 20, in 2003, I believe. But I think it's an interesting one to think about on our teams where the rule basically states that teams need to interview, I think, at least one diverse candidate when running a process to make the next hire. And so the process, you know, will still be meritocratic and it's very important to kind of pick the best fit person for the job. But I think the rule is a nice way to ensure that you're not kind of biased in your selection process and you're making sure to consider a full full set of candidates before making a decision. That's, that's really great to hear. You know, my, my sister is actually in the space as well on the investing side. I think one thing that she mentioned was that a lot of investors, so a lot of asset owners are actually, you know, very conscious about this and trying to work with the industry to hopefully see it evolve from the investing side as well. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there has been a ton of positive change and obviously there's always room to do more and improve. And so, you know, it's interesting to hear how other people, companies, teams are approaching the same challenge. Got it. So what's one underappreciated fintech trend or maybe a sector that you would ask us to you know, take a look at or shine some light on? Yeah, I think one change that's been really interesting is that the role of banks is kind of being the primary source of financial services, I would say, is gradually kind of being eroded or evolving. And so you have a lot of these tech firms entering financial services, whether it's Apple, Samsung, Google entering payments, Apple launching its Apple Card. Amazon and American Express recently launched a partnership to issue new business credit cards, which I thought was very interesting. Facebook creating or trying to create its own currency with Libra. So I think one thing that's been very interesting is the changing role of the bank and how that'll go move going forward with the rise of whether it's these new FinServe companies or uh, new tech giants all trying to enter financial services. And so that's something especially when looking at kind of some of these B2B financial services payments, I'm spending a little bit more time in and watching. Got it. So in conclusion, what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? You know, no, I don't think there'll be any key changes in terms of how we operate or the day-to-day of the team. Uh, Very much looking forward to, you know, continuing to meet and back some incredible entrepreneurs. I think we've been really lucky at Lightspeed to partner with some truly category-defining uh, fintech businesses, whether it's Affirm, Blend, Carta, and continue to kind of play a role in helping these companies as they scale and evolve. Got it. Yes. So uh, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. I think we really learned a lot today you know, about your path, breaking into VC, getting to work at Goldman and McKinsey, which is kind of almost every Wharton student's dream. Also growing up all, all over the world and how that's really you know, guided how you go about your business and how you go about interacting with people. I think Gap Table is definitely a great, great project as well. And you know, it's great to hear about how the Rooney Rule would be helping further certain diversity objectives within the space. 
it's kind of funny that you have an HBS person over here. So naturally, we get a shout out to case studies <laughs> uh-huh, as it you know pertains to uh, bigger banks working with fintech companies where they can list a few wins. And of course, always, always a lot of love for unsolicited, completely unsolicited shout outs for Wharton Fintech Podcast. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your time with us and hope to see you again. Wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thank you.